You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fair Game Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Smith. We got a good one for you today. Today's guest is known as the Midway Gourmet with Ray Kamek Shows, and he's the owner of Odyssey Foods. He has 34 years of experience feeding millions, and I mean millions, of people with that delicious fair food that we've all come to love. He joins us today from Soma, Arizona. Folks, this is Dominic Palmieri. Dominic, welcome to the show, buddy. Robert, man, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. It's great to see anybody right now, right? Yeah, I know, right? I was just thinking uh, when I reached out to you, I really miss doing those early morning KTLA uh, out at OC Fair, you know, the the TV hits with Gail. Um, I'm really hoping we get the opportunity to do it again this summer. Time will tell. We'll see what happens with California. In the meantime, give us some background on you. How did you get into the business and how did you end up with RCS? You know, uh, it goes back a long way. When I was actually quite young, my, uh, who I fondly referred to as my Uncle Art, uh, famously known as the Pasta King in Northern California, uh, had a uh, permanent concession stand at the fairgrounds in Santa Rosa for almost a half a century. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, he just passed uh, this last year, but an icon in Northern California, an icon in the culinary world. And as a young boy at about nine years of age, uh, our family would go up to the fair in Santa Rosa and I was actually, I'd stand on a milk crate and I would actually stir giant pots of spaghetti. And, um, you know, I've always been, uh, being from my, my background being Italian, I've always been in the kitchen with my mom and with my Nona and our family has a lot of tradition with cooking. So it was kind of in my blood. And um, uh, I wanted to start a concession stand, a concessions business, but I wanted to bring like authentic Italian food to the fairs. And so my very first stand in, um, in uh, 1987 was Dominic's Pasta. And this was a spaghetti stand and we did meatball subs and we did pizza and we did sausage sandwiches. That's how I got my start. And then uh, several years after that, I met an amazing woman in the fair business and my wife, Kim, uh, whose family is part of the RCS family. Um, we met, we got married and we've raised four amazing, beautiful, intelligent children in this industry. And I mean, we're in it. We've been in it a long time and uh, our children are actually fourth generation in the industry. And that's how, that's where I am today. That's fantastic. So you kind of got your start in it and then solidified by, by marrying officially into it. I think it's great that you mentioned that, you know, growing up that you were cooking with your Nona. Um, I, I have German and English roots, but Sarah, her maiden name is Galino. So um, you, yeah, as soon as I say that, he's looking at me nodding, going, Oh, I get it. Okay. I know, I know the name, um, you know, Nate's uh Sarah's parents are are for Nate are Nono and Nona. So um he's you know he spends every summer with them down in, in South Mississippi. They're like Cajun Italian. So they can cook, they can do the Italian thing, they can speak a little bit of Italian, and then they can throw the entire southern cuisine in with it. So we kind of get the best of both worlds with that family. Absolutely. Though there's a, actually there's a lot of Italians down in the south, and uh, you know, that cooking style you know they've integrated all of that 
southern sort of seafood crawdad kind of stuff and brought in all the spices and you know changed a lot of the things that were traditional um, right. but the bottom line is a great dish of pasta is still a great dish of pasta no matter what's on top of it you got it but you just exposed yourself by calling them crawdads that you are not from the south because they would be it's a it's crawfish to them i know crawdads but I tell you what, married into a, an Italian family, you know, it, his, her father's name, of course, was Galeno. Mother's maiden name was Dan Tony. So uh, I was kind of the odd man out and in, in marrying into an Italian family. But I tell you what, I know how to cook now. I didn't 20 years ago, but I know how to cook now. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's kind of beautiful. You know, we take and we're talking right now, we're just kind of joking a little bit about the Italian culture. But, you know, one of the things that's been successful about the fair space is all the traditions that families actually start when they come to a fair. And when you really think about it, and listen, we've been watching the exit survey polls and all the fairs we're spending a lot of money on for the past two decades. The number one reason that people come to a fair or a festival is for the food. And the reality is, is all of these, some of the wild and crazy or the wild and wacky foods that we come up with to some of the more traditional fair, are what bring families together. We love to we love to come around food, and 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 starting those new transit those new traditions. When you go to a fair, I mean, when you think about our grandparents that grew up with one simple fair dessert, and that was cotton candy. Well, it was two cotton candy and like caramel and candy apples. Now yeah. you've got deep fried Oreos, deep fried sticker bars, Twinkies, cheesecake. You know. Uh, uh, Nutella. I mean, all of these wild and crazy things have changed, but over the past 15 years, when these became popular, these have now been this new staple. So food's really important and very much a part of our life. So what was ingrained in me as a young boy has transcended into my business operation, you know, that I think has, you know, been very successful with all of these different things. Well, let's, you, you know, you mentioned food um, there and, and how much it brings us together. I really feel like um, you know, for families and friends, breaking bread together is like the heart of family. It's, it's the one thing that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Italian or whether you're Christian or non-Christian or what food brings us together. Um, and you guys serve a lot of it. And yet in the last year, things changed. Uh, you guys didn't, you know, you guys were all down at Houston when that show canceled last year. What are you thinking when all of a sudden you're eight days in and they go, Boom, lights are off. No more Ferris wheel lights. You're done. Yeah. You know, being shut down on day eight of a 21-day event that you had to move 1,200 miles to go get set up, the ramp up and the scale for that financially is tremendous. And so, I mean, reality is in this industry, I mean, it takes us to day 19 to even get to break even. We only got to day eight and that was really hard. And then we had to turn around after tearing it down and bring it all back uh, to Arizona, another 1200 miles round trip. So there was a lot of challenges with that. We had, we were ramping up for the next 13 days that we had all of the stars and the planets were lined up with the fact that the weather was going to be perfect, like 85 degrees during the day and like mm. 70 degrees at night. Perfect. We had, like 12 massive concerts back to back to back where, I mean, I'm going to tell you that average seats would have probably been in the high sixties, high 67, 68,000 people would have been in that stadium 
every day. Um, we had the perfect storm of all the spring breaks. We had every college in Houston was on spring break. All the community colleges were on spring break. Rice University, all the big universities were on spring break. And to top it all off, the Houston Unified School District and all of the private, all your Catholic Christian schools, uh, all the religious schools, everybody was on spring break. So this was like the perfect storm. We were ramping up for something that was just gonna be huge. And then the rug got pulled out from underneath us. That was really hard. We donated tens of thousands. I wanna tell you, I think the number was over 88,000 pounds of food that we donated to the food bank. We had nowhere to go with it because we literally got shut down. And on that day, I'll never forget, to the fair industry, that was kind of like ground zero. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. At that time, the pandemic was still new and there was a lot that we didn't know about it. But the day that Houston canceled at 11 o'clock Texas time, that was nine o'clock West Coast time, 20 minutes after that, Oregon, Washington, I mean, everybody just started going, going, going. And by the end of that week and early into the next week, like the top 10 events in the country, everybody was canceling. Certainly everything in spring through the middle of summer was canceled. Yep. So made it really, really hard and um, changed the dynamics of the industry, broke the business model. I mean, brought it to its knees. And so now, you know, as stewards of this industry, it's our job to figure out how is this new you know, how is this new fair going to look? You know, what's it going to be like? What are the safety standards and the protocols that are going to need to be, uh, you know, brought to the forefront to make true, to make it truly safe for the customer, make it safe for the employees and, and restore customer confidence. That's going to be one of the biggest challenges. The other thing is, is just like our fairs, uh, just like our companies, our fairs have tremendous amount of, of cost to ramp up. How are they going to do that when they're absolutely broke from being through this whole last year with no income, right. no from events, no fairs, no nothing, and then expect to put on an event where there's supposed to be concerts? We don't know if there's going to be concerts. Very sure. few. Very few. Most of the fairs are saying no concerts. You know, what are they doing for marketing and advertising? If there's not budget, how good are we going to be with social media? A lot of challenges coming down the pipeline, but I think that there's a lot of dedicated professionals that are really doing their best to, uh, to have this rebound come back and come back with some sort of uh, a vision for the future. Yeah, I agree. You know, you mentioned this whole pandemic has flipped the business model on its head. I imagine for you guys as, um, you know, food distributors, concessionaires, that's got to be crushing on your food costs with the pandemic causing supply disruptions and so much unknown out there. Uh, you know, whether we're even going to have fares, how do you, because I imagine with, with, RCS, you you're buying food in bulk. I mean, you like quadrillions of of turkey legs and corn dogs and all that stuff ahead of time, but you can't guarantee. You know, I don't know what you're doing. It's three quarters of a million, a million turkey legs at a time. You can't guarantee that. You can't buy like that. So your price has got to change. What? How does this affect your food costs? Yeah. So that you couldn't have asked a better question at a better time. Just yesterday. I was on the phone with um, one of our regional reps with Cisco, Cisco Foods, um, you know, talking about, hey, listen, you know, there is a chance that we that one of the California fairs might get open, maybe two. And with that said, you know, when fair season is just like in normal, 
we start planning between four and six months ahead of time for the California fairs. We have to have everything in place, all that commodity, all of that, all those products need to be brought in. The manufacturers need to ramp up to have enough supply for us and know that that pipeline of that supply chain is continuous because there are some limitations. Cisco can only store so much product for, at a time. So they have to know that the supply chain every week, you know, 20 more semis of, of, of groceries are coming in to supply the fares. Well, we had a specific conversation about turkey legs. The number one use for turkey legs in non-fair time is for processing all kinds of different ground turkey meats and products, hot dogs and, and ground turkey, things like that. Well, because even the volumes of sales in the turkey commodity market are so far down, nobody's using the dark meat. So we're trying to figure out what's happening to all these turkey legs. And they have been storing turkey legs and have been absorbing this substantial cost of frozen storage that has added anywhere from eight to as much as $15 a case for turkey legs. That's not even talking about the increased cost in transportation. We know right now, as of yesterday, per unit, a turkey leg will be costing us approximately 90 cents more per unit than we were in 2019. Just because wow. the cost alone is almost 65 cents a pound higher than it was in 2019 when we were closed. Wow. So we're trying to figure out what do we do with this? Because you have to, don't forget, you know, a lot of the rents are on a percentage. Well, you have to factor that in. And we're talking about turkey legs going to be $20. I mean, we're, we're trying to figure out how are we going to price this? How are we going to figure out rents? How are we going to cater to a customer and still be fair to them, give them great quality and give them value? Right. It's still yet to be seen. How many, on a, on, say in 2019, rough estimate, how many turkey legs did you guys sell? So us per, we were probably in the, we were probably in the five to seven semis of turkey legs. Uh, and that's a lot of, that's, is that's that a half million? Is it a million? Like how many units? That would be probably, yeah, well into, well into over a half a million turkey legs across the whole, across the whole. Um, and, it, and you know, another 90 cents a unit, that's. Um, it's almost, another, almost another half million dollars that you, that you lose in profit. Yeah. And, 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 and frankly, it's even more because the cost of labor has jumped up significantly as well. And more. on top of it, the cost of propane has jumped up. So I mean, all of these big smoker ovens that we have that are cooking the product, all the products that support what we need to sell the turkey legs have yeah. all increased. So yeah, there's a lot of it, a lot of inflation on the supply chain right now. And sure. we're, trying to, we're trying to figure this out. And by the way, when we go in this year, we're talking about going in in maybe like August, where we used to start the supply chain in February. Yeah. So the use, the use is gonna be, overall numbers are gonna be way down. And of course, when usage goes down, price continues to go up. So yet to be seen how it's gonna affect us, but it's not looking good at this point. Well, there's been, you know, a lot of pivots and I know a lot of people hate the word pivot. I'm not a big fan of it. A lot of adjustments that have had to be made in the industry. I know several acts that um, had CDLs that put their trucks to use. So instead of keeping their trucks parked in on a lot, they are driving, you know, for freight companies, Amazon, whatever, just to keep the, the wheels moving down the road. I understand you and Kim put a new business together in the middle of the pandemic. Tell us about it. 
Yeah, so one of the things that we were doing while we were down in Houston is we were disinfecting and sanitizing because, you know, there was chatter and there were things that were going on in the prior year in 2018, back in October, November, December. And as a company, we always took a proactive approach and we've actually had automatic hand sanitizer dispensers on the Midway for uh, honestly about eight or nine years. We've been doing that ahead of time. And that was because there was a few fairs in the country that had some E. coli outbreaks, had nothing to do with us or our food operation, had to do with either water supply or it could have been animals. Nobody could really identify where it was, but it was tragic to the business model affairs. So we took a, a proactive approach and started having more opportunities for sanitizing, convinced fairs to add more restrooms for hand washing. And one of the things that we were doing was we were already disinfecting and sanitizing large seating areas. When we set up a big barbecue um, operation, especially in Houston, we have seating for like almost 800 people. And we were disinfecting and sanitizing. And there was, there was EPA and there was FDA uh, agents that were down actually at the rodeo and a couple of them came up and said wow we were watching what you guys were doing and you have this equipment and you guys just you're really on top of it and since we had figured out what we were doing when we got closed down Kim and I and our family had realized that this was not going to be something that was going to go away anytime soon the industry was trying to be as optimistic as possible of oh in three four weeks this will all blow over we'll be back to normal Yep. Well, we didn't see it that way. And so we took a big gamble and we started a mobile disinfection and sanitizing company. But the main reason we started it was because we wanted to be that service provider for our fares to help our fares to get reopened safely and be able to really talk about how they were doing it and set that branding of what that new level of safety was going to be for the customer. That's what we were going to do. Well, when all the fairs just continued to get closed, they were canceling and canceling, and canceling. As a family, we were sitting around the table. As a matter of fact, this table that I'm sitting at right here, and it was our 16-year-old son that said, well, dad, if none of the fairs are going to open, what are we going to do with this disinfection company? But if the fairs need it, don't all of their businesses need it too? And that's kind of like everybody that was sitting around this table, our eyes lit up and said, wow, you're right. Everybody else is going to need this, not just the fares. And so we took 30 days to turn on, to flip the switch on this company. And Kim and I were very fortunate. We had our son, our oldest son, Gino, uh, who attends USC, was actually on semester abroad in Germany. We had to get him home before they closed the country down. Our other daughter is at SMU in Dallas. So we had this brain trust of kids coming back from college and we thought this is a great opportunity um, as, a, as an opportunity for them to, to see what it takes to start a company from scratch. We had them involved in everything from all of the permits that we needed, all of the training that we needed. We joined the largest global a cleaning company organization in the world that helped us to get all the training done. And we got all the permits and, and licensing that we needed from the state for chemicals and, and what we needed to do. We acquired all the correct equipment and we actually went out there and we marketed ourselves. And, you know, it took a little bit to get started, but once it caught on organically, the company kept growing and we were able to transition initially about a dozen of our 30 regular employees, we kept about a dozen working, 
We were able to ramp up on some of the large jobs to as many as 20. And over the past several months, you know, we keep between four and eight working off and on. And that was the goal because we needed to, to keep them working and alive so that when we got opened back up with fairs, we at least had a management team in place that could go back and start setting up food stands and start doing all the, the, the fair operation again. So we were, we were fortunate that we had the, the vision to, to be out in front and we kind of created our own lane because there was nobody really doing what right. we what we started doing you had you had companies that do like crime scene cleanup and that was not we had no interest in doing that then yeah. you on the other lane you had all of the um uh, surgical center and hospital and those kinds of medical grade disinfecting we took all of those same skills and put a lane right down the middle to cater to commercial offices gyms churches schools daycares nice residential, the whole nine yards. Now, is this the same type of um, chemical we see like Southwest Airlines and whatnot advertising the kind of the spray disinfectant that they're they're cleaning their airplanes with? It's that same type of thing? Yes, very similar. We're using something quite different. We took a very, uh, we wanted to take a very green environmental approach to it. And Mm -hmm. so we're using all these great chemicals. But what I'm going to tell you is the, the world globally, especially in the US, there's a lot of chemicals that are being used that are not safe for people and animals, mm. and especially the buildup of those chemicals over now continued use before when they were used once in a while, you know, they were okay. Now we're talking about using them every day and using continued exposure. Yeah. You know, so, and I'll be, and let's get, let's talk about people and animals. I was very um, concerned about all of these chemicals that, that the industries, other industries were using that I knew were not going to be a good fix for a uh, fit for the fairgrounds. We have huge underground water supplies on a lot of the fairgrounds and we have animals at the fairgrounds. We've got millions of people that come. And when you talk about residues and all these things building up and being on chairs and tables and all those things, these things are not meant to be touched with your hands or for dermal, dermal contact. Right. Uh, they're meant for, you know, they're meant for porcelain and plastic and, and things that people don't really touch a lot. Sure. Um, we, we, we don't have that. We, we need something that's going to be safe. So we really searched out the best. And, and when we get ready to open, we know that we've, that we've got what's going to take to keep people safe. Well, I think it's fantastic. And uh, I think the takeaway here is that, you know, rather than react to the pandemic with emotion and fear, we can respond to it. And that means executing on behaviors with the desired outcome in mind, rather than just being, you know, emotionally driven. In your case, you guys didn't sit around, you know, your son threw out an idea and and you were proactive and got out ahead of things. There are a lot of folks in the industry right now, though, that have been crippled by COVID and, you know, from entertainers that have been furloughed to fair employees that are furloughed, you know, we're all kind of sitting around waiting for things to get started. What's your advice to these these folks that are that have been hurt so badly by COVID? Yeah, so you know, I you know it was hard when you're one of the few people that's saying, "Hey guys, this is way more serious than than we all think it is, and this is going to be potentially a multiple year recovery." You have to plan and and set your business model accordingly. So what I'm saying is, the tunnel is long but there's still light at the end of the tunnel. Our goal is to have enough staying power to get to that, to get to that end of that tunnel, to get back to the light. 
And so we knew that we needed to find something that was going to create an income that was also going to be relevant to how our business and a division of our business could also then be successful when we, when we reopen, because there's no doubt we're going to have, once we reopen, while yes, millions of people across the country, everybody's saying, everybody's just dying to get out. Everybody's dying to get out. Well, that's still yet to be seen. Um, there are a few events that opened in Florida that were considerably down, and there was others that were close to where they were. However, spending has been down. There's a lot of unemployment. So there's some other challenges with, with a full recovery because there's a tremendous amount of unemployment in the country. There's a, a lot of people that are, frankly, afraid to get back into open spaces with a lot of people in, in, in large numbers. So we're going to have some challenges with attendance being down, spending potentially could be down. Um, while the economy seems to be hot, it's because that's a lot of free money that the government's been printing, but that can only last so long. And the yep. reality is, is we're probably on our last go around of this here in the first week of March. You know, there's some money that's coming back out on a second round of PPP, but when that runs out, you know, it's going to be every man, woman, and child for themselves and companies are going to have to figure out how to make this work. So yep. I think that if we, if we stay on the course, we, a lot of things are very disruptor right now. And so it's okay to be a disruptor in the business model. I think that we need to look at doing everything completely different than we used to do it. Because the reality is, is over the past 10 years, our customer has actually changed quite a bit as well. The customer is driven different with technology. Everything in their life and in the world is in the palm of their hand on this, on this thing right here. On the phone, so, yep. You know, so we have to learn how to market differently. We have to learn how to reach out differently. We need to learn how to deliver an even higher quality of product because uh, I think our customer is looking for more of an experience, this yeah. experiential sort of moment. It's not just about walking up and handing somebody a corn dog and say, here you go. You know, they want to know, you know, where did this corn dog come from? Where's the sausage made? You know, oh, it's made in Texas. That's really cool. You know, they got a smoked sausage and oh, and this, you know, the corn is organic and the, the, they're looking for all these things. So we have to innovate and adapt as, uh, as, as fair um, businesses to cater to this new type of, of customer that's expecting way more than what, what our grandparents used to, when they were happy with one dessert, which was cotton candy, or maybe two desserts, a, a candy yeah. apple. It's, it's way different now. Now you got to have 25 different options for desserts on the fairgrounds because people are, you know, they have different tastes and they want to try all sorts of different things and they don't want to wait until next year to try something new. They want to try five or six new things every year. Absolutely. And the thing is, is, you know, and talk about portions. What are we doing with portions? You know, do we make the portions smaller to sell more of them? Cause people don't necessarily want to share something anymore. When I took a bite of something and somebody else took a bite of something that was okay. Now, of course with my family that is, but you know, do people really want to share things? Do they want to touch things? That's a good point. Yeah. Cause a lot of those foods were shared. You know, a lot of times it was let's get this entire funnel cake and three of us will eat off of it. But now if people are a little gun shy about what they're sharing, you know, how does that alter food costs? Can you guys charge 
the same or maybe a little less and cut the portion size by 30%. I don't know. You know. Yeah. So does that mean, do we sell more? So I'll use an example. If a funnel cake was $8 and we used to sell one that three people were sharing, are we now selling three at $6 or $5? So there is some opportunity to look at the overall spend and the per cap. We just have to be really good at how fast we can produce. It's going to be a function of horsepower. How yeah. much we produce? Are these stands capable of producing two or three times more and maintaining quality? That's where the challenge is going to be. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, you've been in the concession and the business game a long time. What's one thing you know now that would have been helpful to know when you got into it 30 some odd years ago? Um. I wish I would have had the technology and the means to communicate with all my suppliers and my employees back then, as well as we can now. And I'll use a, I'll use a perfect example. One of the biggest challenges for any company, I don't care if you're selling widgets and gadgets or software or whatever the case may be. When you have employees, you have to be able to communicate with them. And now with modern day technology, at some of the big fairs, we'll have anywhere from 140, maybe 160 employees at one event. Well, how do you communicate with that many people? Well, guess what? Now we have apps like WhatsApp or WhatsApp or Signal, you know, it's like the new one now, you know, all of these things that you can communicate in more real time. And I'll use a great example in, um, in an event like Houston, that's early in the year, there's some challenges with weather. And so, you know, as they say, you know, if you want to know what the weather is going to be like in Texas, just wait 10 minutes and you'll know. So, <laughs> you know, when all of a great. sudden you thought the weather was going to be great, but now all of a sudden it's pouring rain and three hours is going to go by with everybody inside buildings and nobody outside at the concession stands. It's great to be able to communicate with all your employees and say, okay, guys, everybody that was due to come in at 10 o'clock, we're pushing you back to noon. And so that savings in labor that we weren't able to do with with employees before is huge to the bottom line because we're talking about such small net profits and when you start talking about shaving one or two percent well one or two percent could be as much as like 15 or 20 percent of the net profit that's yep. a tremendous amount of money it sure is it sure is Dominic, listen, we got just a few minutes left before we wrap it up. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Before we do go, everyone who comes on the show goes through a little series of speed round questions. So I'm going to ask you six quick questions. Oh, the look on his face right now. He's like, oh, God, help me. And I didn't give warn about this one. Oh, man, you that me on my toes. Oh, geez. You give me your best answer for each question. Are you ready? Okay. Question one. Cotton candy or an elephant ear? Cotton candy. Does pineapple belong on pizza? No. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. <laughs> the Midway Gourmet says no pineapple on pizza. No. There you go. It's official. Next question. If a movie was made about your life, which actor would play you? George Clooney. That works. What's the last book you read? Oh man, you know, honestly, I don't read books. I read a lot. I read a lot of magazine. I read a lot of articles and it's a lot of investing stuff and business stuff. 
I, I work so many hours. I don't have time. By the time I get to bed at night, I start to read and I fall asleep. So I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not, a, not a book guy. I'm not a book reader. Although I am reading for all the good Catholics that are listening to the podcast. My wife has this great book on Lent and it's a 40 day thing. So I'm flipping through it every day. So that's about as close as I've yet right now, but a lot of magazines and a lot of stuff on business. Got it. What's the best concert you've ever attended? Oh, super tramp. 1980, 1986 at Irvine Meadows Amphitheater. It was their last world tour and the last show that they ever, ever performed at together as a group. Man, you know some specifics on that. That's amazing. And last question, you can have a conversation with any historical figure. Who would you pick? Wow. That's a good one. Um, I would think, um, wow. I dumped him on this one and I, I know, didn't even right? mean to. There's like so many things because, you know, it's like, I love all the food stuff. I love all the business stuff, you know, like who's the father of, you know, who was like the guy that really started to ratchet down on, on modern day business practices, um, you know, but, but I love visionaries. And so I would say it'd probably be one of the forefathers of our country. And um, I'd say Benjamin Franklin. I think he was, a, I think he was a big thinker. I think that he was, um, he was someone that was not only as an innovator and a businessman, but understood people. And I, I, I loved, I loved history. Those kinds of guys that were, that did things that changed the world. And that would certainly be, that would certainly be one of them. The other ones would be all of the big, food innovators that also changed the world and changed business. So the families like Kraft, I'd love to see have to that first Kraft um, uh, family member that started Kraft Foods or even like the guys like, you know, like a Ray Kroc that started McDonald's that started right. a completely new, a completely new concept of franchising a business and then figuring out how to scale it and make it right and make it um, right. The quality consistent across that thing. I love innovation and I love consistency um, those would be a few. Well, when we consider Ray Kroc, he wasn't really a food guy. He was a real estate guy. Absolutely. But he was a smart business mind yep. and figured out how to make it work. So he was a think about a, how big of a thinker he had to be to go from a real estate guy and, and door to door sort of salesman to creating the largest franchise on the planet. Yep. Fascinating. Dominic, I know from our talk today, as well as our pre-show discussions, you've got a real, you seem to have a real grasp on the situation that our industry is facing. If folks want to get in contact with you and chat with you, how can they do that? Sure. You know, you can, you can reach out. Unfortunately, too many people in the industry have my, um, have my email. Uh, you can reach me, you can reach me by email. I'm really good about answering the phone. I'm an old fashioned guy. I like connecting with people and hearing their voice and talking to them um, so I can hear, and, and especially on, on Zoom like this, on video, so I can see the emotion. Um, I text, I, I email. Um, I don't know if you can put it up in your podcast. Uh, maybe you can include all the information. Uh, yep, we can do it on the episode notes. But you can put my email on there. The RCS Fund email is really easy. Um, my phone number. I mean, I'll let you do that too, because I would think that professionals that are watching this you know, are considerate of everybody's time, including, you know, their own and everybody else's. But if they had an important question and they wanted to run some, I'm happy 
I'm happy to answer questions. I'm not sure that I have the answers, but I can certainly give you my opinion because mine stinks just as much as everybody else's. <laughs> well, and he gave the opinion on pineapple on pizza. So what else do you need? I mean, we've got a, we got the whole world figured out right now. No more pineapple on pizza. Listen, man, I miss, I miss seeing you out on the road. Um, I, I think you're one of the real good guys in this industry, and I wish you and Kim and your family uh, a safe and successful rest of, of the year. Dominic Palmieri, owner of Odyssey Foods and the Midway Gourmet with Ray Kamek Shows. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, keep up, keep up, keep up, keep on grinding, because if you're not grinding, you're getting ground up. Do not stop until you figure this out. And there's enough bright people in this industry to figure this out. We're all going to be okay. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.